And I don't think that the police typically look for motives when they're doing an investigation. And I think that the reason for that is, is experience shows them that just about the time they think they can start determining what motives are, human nature being what it is, someone comes up with a different motive. So they, they I shouldn't say they discount motive, but they don't try to make a motive fit an incident. Mm -hmm. I mean, they'll look for motive, they'll look for evidence and everything else, but they keep it in proper perspective. That was the voice of Sam Yarborough, an outside polygraph examiner that sometimes worked with the police in Creve Corps, Missouri. Keep it in proper perspective, he said. We've been looking in depth at the events of March 26, 1990, the day that Elizabeth McIntosh was murdered on the campus of Covenant Theological Seminary. While the police began circling the grounds of Covenant, Students, professors, and people from Elizabeth's church also began trying to make sense of what happened. This project isn't just about the murder. It's also about understanding how the 33 years since Elizabeth's death have unfolded. A lot of the people we've talked to remember certain things vividly. Prayer services, fingerprint pads, opening an office safe. Some people talked to everyone they could about the murder. Others, scared or confused or just following advice, kept their thoughts and theories to themselves. So what would it look like if everyone laid their cards on the table and talked about everything they know in the unsolved murder of Elizabeth McIntosh? This is True Believer, episode four, 33 years and counting. We want to set the stage for what the feeling was like on the Covenant campus in the immediate aftermath of the murder, hearing from some of the people who were there. First is Chris and Marilyn Baker, who were close friends with Elizabeth, both as students together at Covenant and fellow congregants at Providence Reformed Presbyterian Church. I think there was fear. There was a lot of fear. Yeah, there was fear. Because nobody knew who it was. <laughs> speculation. Speculation, yep. Plenty of speculation. There was uh, conversation, but it was more along the lines of, really, is this an isolated thing, or is this somebody on the prowl? Was it a vagrant who came in and was... But, but the description of the circumstances, I couldn't understand how a vagrant would do what they did, you know, because some of the details started to come out. Well, plus the fact that they had said, Elizabeth always locked the doors behind her, when she would go, you know, she was cleaning the, the classrooms and the underneath the chapel building. Right. And she would lock the doors. She would lock the, the doors. That's when she why went they in. said it had to be somebody she knew to open. To, it had to be somebody she knew, or she wouldn't have opened the door, or it had to be someone with a key to have access to the door. Yeah. And remember that one Korean, our neighbor Bong Cho, was just like devastated because he had been out and about too. He was. He was. He wasn't a suspect, but he was like, I saw her, you know, and I don't know at what point. Uh, do you remember any of that? I just remember Bong Cho was just a mess. No, sorry. I don't remember. As a reminder, Bong Cho was the Korean student praying in the chapel overnight. He was the last person to see Elizabeth alive around 5 a.m. One interesting thing to note here. Based on other interviews in the police files and people we've spoken to directly, multiple people said that Elizabeth would often not lock the chapel doors behind her when she was cleaning. One Covenant student named Carmen, 
who claimed he was a prayer partner of Elizabeth, told investigators a story that she told him. She said that a covenant professor that she was very close with, Dr. Raymond, walked in on her early one morning while she was cleaning the chapel, and this scared her. You women think you can do anything, Raymond said to her. What would you do if I was someone here to hurt you? Here's Ruth talking about another former Covenant student who told her a similar story. We did talk to somebody who was in charge of locking and unlocking the doors. He didn't want to be interviewed, but he did say that several times he walked in on Elizabeth cleaning and she hadn't locked the doors. And he was like, Elizabeth, you've got to, you've got to lock these doors. What if somebody came in? He, he said that to me. <laughs> so it was in his mind that it was a possibility, at yeah. least, that sometimes she forgot to lock the doors and anybody could go in. You know, and, and that might be a useful thing just to drop in at some point in one of these episodes of we've essentially tried to reach out to every person named in all of these police reports. That, and some people were willing to talk. Some people wanted to talk but felt like their reputations were tied to covenants and it made them nervous to talk about it because they thought that it might have a negative impact on their work or their church or their, you know, whatever. So there's still lots of other people we'd love to talk to. Now, we do know that the chapel doors were locked on the morning of the murder because Rob, the student who was practicing his sermon, had let himself into the rear chapel entrance after he tried to open the front doors and found them locked. He was the first person back into the chapel after the police think Elizabeth was already dead in the men's restroom. Next is Skip and Bonnie Dusenberry, who also knew Elizabeth from both Covenant and Providence Church. They drove her to and from the Sunday night service at Providence the night before she died. I would say it was real greed. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Grief, I mean... And we couldn't believe shock. It. Shock was one dimension. I think everybody sadness. felt badly that she had come to study theology and counseling in America. And you know, we picked up her parents from the airport and took them to the funeral. And it was just heartbreaking. You know, also on the campus, there was a lot of talk about who did it. I mean, we all know knew it was somebody on campus, or at least well, you that's know, what we that, thought. that was the supposition that you know. And actually, the person they suspected was living in our neighborhood. So the police, because we had dropped her off the night before, yeah, they, they came the next day. They would continually call and talk, and um, what did that feel like to just have to keep talking about it and keep talking about it? Obviously, it was it was hard. I mean, in some ways, I guess it's therapeutic in a way. It's one way you can process grief, but it was it was also very I mean, difficult. We wanted to help and, the police in any way we could. Yeah, you know, we wanted um, to. You know, you just but, trying so hard to remember stuff. You know, I've since talked to the detectives who are still working on the case. They've called me several times, and you just wish you could come up with. Yeah, I mean, part of it's frustration because you'd love to come up with some answers and. Uh, but at the same time, obviously, it's it's painful to think that it might have been somebody who was part of the Covenant community, but that was kind of the assumption, you know, that that was likely what happened. Uh, I mean, it was just sort of surreal. I mean, it was just a really, really weird situation. That's Ed, who you heard in episode two. 
He was late for class the morning of the murder and walked into the chapel just as the building was closing for the day. They had chapel services and uh, to pray. Um, people sort of talked about it and sort of didn't. I talked to a professor and I think he brought it up and uh, or I might have asked what was going on with the, you know with the, with the investigation and he said, you know, we may need to brace ourselves for the fact that it could be someone that we love and care about it. You know, they don't know who did it, but it's being investigated and we might need to brace ourselves for the, you know, it might be someone we know. And then also I heard at one point that from the situation, I guess it had been concluded that it was someone, it was probably someone that Elizabeth knew. And I will tell you, TJ, the situation, right, I think it was the closest that I've been to a murder. You, you know what I mean? It's a close, you know, like knew someone currently and they got murdered someplace that I had been. And you, you know what I mean? And so there was the feeling of, evil you know it was like i wanted to stay I, I i was not that involved in campus i didn't feel like i was one of the in crowd and my initial reaction was not to want to get involved and what i mean by that is if the if the campus was pulling together or whatever and mourning together or whatever i didn't want to have any part of that because i i just uh I, I felt like it was a blessing at that point, at that moment, that I wasn't very involved and very close to the situation, you know, because uh, it just seemed evil. And my my instinct was to turn the other way from from evil. Do you mean that in the sense that because it was possible that the killer was like amongst you? I think so. I think so. She had a girl roommate and I know that that girl didn't come back to class. She she transferred to another school. You know, I'm sure she was completely devastated. It, she probably had the same instinct that I did to get away. You know what I mean? Um, I think that, uh, you know, I don't know how long school was closed, but it didn't open right up. And, uh, you know, it seemed like people were a combination of just stunned. I mean, I don't know what word could be strong enough to, you know, shocked. I mean, just just completely taken aback, you know, like, did this really happen? And, uh, and there was a weird vibe. It was just really strange. Um, and I remember also a morning when I think the police and the fire department showed up and they looked on the roof of that building. The gossip, so then I did hear a little gossip, and the gossip was that they were uh, possibly looking for a weapon that had been thrown up on the roof, or that they wanted the suspect to think that they might have found the weapon. Yeah, it was just a really weird vibe. There's a page in the police report dated April 4th, so about a week after the murder detailing the police assisting the Creve Corps Fire Department searching the guttering on the chapel, attempting to locate, quote, the device used to stab the victim, which met with negative results, unquote. And for that matter, it's worth noting that the police never definitively identified the murder weapon. They tested several items taken from Michael's apartment, including a pair of scissors and a steak knife, and also a pair of scissors that they found in the chapel basement, but none of the tests revealed definitive traces of blood. Here's Jerem Bars. 
I remember praying with students in class that it would be resolved and those kinds of things. Praying for Elizabeth's family and then especially when they came over for the funeral. I went to the funeral service at the Kirk. You know, it was so miserable and I felt so sorry, you know, for her family who were here to, to lose their daughter like that. But you, you have to get on with things. It's like in a family, you know, if you lose your spouse or if your spouse is suddenly struck ill, you're just overwhelmed, but you get on with it. You take care of your children, you feed them, you do all the things that need to be done. My wife had cancer, very serious, and I was told by the surgeon, by our family doctor and by the oncologist that she would die. I was appalled. I mean, it just, we have a very happy marriage. It just tore me to pieces, but I had to go in and teach every day. And I had to take care of my sons and my family, etc. And you, you just get on and do things, even though you're falling to pieces inside. And I think with Elizabeth's murder, there's bits of you that are falling to pieces because you're so appalled by this, that somebody you know has been brutally murdered, probably by somebody else that you know, but you've got to keep going. And so you pray and you lament and you hurt, but you get on with it. And so I, I got on with my job teaching, just like I did when I thought my wife was dying and I felt, at the time even, like a kind of naked sword that God was using to cut people to the heart. So even though you're, you've got something horrible is happening or has happened, you, you just get on with life. Because you have to. And the Lord wants you to. Rather than to just stop. So it was a very painful semester in that sense. But I was bewildered by what appeared to be the lack of serious investigation by the police at the time. Now, I'm sure I'm wrong about it, but they certainly never talked to me. They didn't talk to anybody else I know either that I'm aware of. I overheard a couple of policemen talking as I was walking to class one day, and one of them had opened the Old Testament and was reading a verse from Leviticus at random about blood and made the most absurd comments. I mean, it was a comment made out of total ignorance. Like, this has to be one of the reasons why there's this murder has taken place. Here's this statement about blood. I mean, it's just nonsense. It didn't make me think well of them. There's an interesting tension between those on the Covenant side, students, staff, faculty, administrators, and the police who are conducting the investigation. On the one hand, the police would have liked more cooperation from the seminary, which you'll hear more about later in this episode. But on the other hand, there was a sense from those at Covenant that the police weren't exactly on top of things. Here's Ruth and I discussing that tension. We've seen the lead sheet. We know that the police were working 80 plus leads and trying to talk to a bunch of different people. That took time. And for obvious reasons, they weren't telling people exactly who they were talking to or what their theories were. Well, I think what he's getting to there, the police are working leads based on information they've gathered. You know, as they said in the first episode, you talk to one person, they send you on a wild goose chase to four more people. Maybe that one of those people sends you to someone else. So they're working through this network. But there were people on campus that maybe the police didn't think were relevant 
you know, they didn't interview all the professors. Was that something they should have done? Well, we know that they interviewed a lot of people on campus, but as far as we know, there was never an effort, and it's not clear that Covenant would have allowed them to sit down one by one and talk to every single person on campus that day. Presumably, they could have figured out everybody who was either a student in general or planning to be on campus that Monday, but we don't I don't think they systematically went through and got every single name and talked to every single person. Um, And so I think that's part of what Jerem's saying. He's like, well, I knew I was there, but how come nobody else knew I was there? And then I think there's also the comment about the seminary feeling very foreign to police officers who didn't understand Mm -hmm. church stuff, which is fine and normal. And then kind of like, They're trying to piece together some, like, in the name of the rose kind of conspiracy of Mm -hmm. somebody reading this Bible verse and then feeling the voice of the Lord call them to do this Mm -hmm. crazy thing. Yeah. Here, uh, it was a very confusing time. The police were talking to a lot of people, but as far as we know, they didn't talk to everyone. That becomes relevant later. And some people on campus... We're like, well, it's kind of strange that you didn't try to talk to me. I, I might have had, I don't know. I, it's not that I know that I know something. It's more just like that it didn't seem very thorough. And like you didn't quite turn over every stone in order to solve this. Here's detectives George Hodak and Dennis Spory talking about the continuing investigation after that first day. We started interviewing a, a number of people. You want suspects, witnesses, uh, somebody. You, you actually, you're starting to just interview a lot of people to see if they saw or heard anything or if they know anything. And we found, I don't know if we found him that day or the next, but there was a, that one guy who was adamant. The guy said he was going to go over right. there. And it was actually earlier than yeah, 630. No, he said 630. Yeah, maybe six, about 630 or something like that. And he said it. Twice, maybe three times. He said it during the investigation, I think. And then he said it to Bailey, because Bailey actually met him at the the airport. airport. And then we got it. He's got an audio tape of that one. And the guy says, yeah, he said he was going to go over there at 630. Or said he was over there at 630. And he stayed with that for years. This is a very important moment, potentially one of the most important of the entire investigation. So we need to clarify a little bit here especially with all the references to he said that he said. Here's Ruth. You know, so they're talking about somebody who remembers, says he remembers Michael saying that he planned to meet Elizabeth early in the morning on Monday, earlier than he reported to police later. So 6.30 versus 7.15. And so this is somebody who is essentially rebutting Michael's narrative of the day. And so they take that as an interesting point of information of Michael possibly being on campus earlier than he said he was. However, we'll say later (laughs) that this person talking to the police right now may or may not be reliable. We'll get into that later. Originally, we planned to talk about this other student's testimony at this point, but it turned out to need a lot more time than we have in this episode. So we're going to come back to it later in the series. 
Each time we were in investigations in the commanders, we had a, a task with seeing what we could end up doing. Dale did a profile with the FBI. FBI said, yeah, you just didn't stay with him long enough. I did one with uh, guys from homicide detectives from around St. Louis. For cold case. Cold case. I went to Philadelphia, and I told the story in Philadelphia for the VDOC Society. Right, that's it, the VDOC. Yeah. And then we had, I had a uh, psychological guy, I'll say, he reviewed it and kind of gave me his thoughts on it, too. Then when I was in, I got, it looks like two big boxes. Yeah. All the reports were in. And trying to go through this stuff was really tedious. So I found out about the uh, FBI had a program where they could copy this stuff and put it on a disk so that you could search it. Well, I went to Springfield and I had all took all the reports up there. And, and these went. these two boxes are Creve Corps police files, or where are these boxes it's from? Creve Corps police initial files. It's a major case squad files. After the major case squad, we were T- task force. We had a task force that was, we didn't let it go after that. We had a task force that was developed, and there was three sets of two. Yeah, I was the only one that wasn't on it. <laughs> and I teamed up with somebody from St. Louis County, and the other two guys did also. And we followed up with more leads, trying to track every, everyone down. So I lost my train of thought there were. Oh, the, the boxes. The, oh, the boxes. <laughs> yeah. The boxes. You got to figure we're all almost 70 years old. Yeah. <laughs> the box, it's not like this happened 33 years yeah. ago. The boxes had our reports, major case squad reports, task force reports. It had the all the photographs in it. It had the autopsy, autopsy report. report. Uh it was just, yeah, just two big boxes. Stuff, yeah. So I, I went and had all this stuff processed so that we could try to search through it. But ended up finding out that I brought it back to St. Louis, and I said, okay, I'll take, I'll start searching everything and take it down to the FBI. And the FBI said, oh, no, this is a proprietary program. You have to go back up to Springfield. Could not do it down to the FBI. Oh, so you went all the way there, and they wouldn't do it for you. I went to, I went downtown to the FBI. They said, oh, we can't do that because it's proprietary, and only Springfield has it, which didn't make a lot of sense to me. But Yeah, because we, we needed something where we could just go Smith, and then all the Smith right. information popped up, but we didn't have that at the time. I can empathize with their frustration here. Trying to sort through the hundreds of pages of police reports and hours of recorded interviews that we've gotten access to has been a monumental task. There's almost certainly things buried in the reports that we're going to miss because it's just so difficult to keep track of everything, especially without having it all digitally searchable. But the more important thing to take away from what they're talking about is the fact that detectives have continued to make attempts to solve the case over the years, despite very little evidence to go on. It's not like they gave up after the first week when the major case squad disbanded. Okay, so let's talk about, you've got the first week with the major case squad, and then after they disband, there's the task force. Yeah. And it's been 33 years and there's still no charges brought. So at some point, is the case always, it's just been kind of perpetually open? Or is there a date where it's kind of like, well, we got nothing else. We're just going to have to kind of move on from this? No, it's, or? it's perpetually open. Yeah. Every every commander, investigation commander that's been in there since, that, since the murder has been tasked with reviewing it and seeing if they can come up with any other, any new leads. And uh, I think it was like nine years, but it's happened in 1990. Yeah. You guys were on the task force. I was the only one that was, wasn't on the task force. And then for some reason, you guys do it a week? 
Oh no, it was longer than that. You did longer yeah. than a week because I I, I took every we were, other. I had to investigate every other crime that occurred. Yeah, <laughs> nah, we were. I had a stack of papers. Uh, so, but what ha- what I'm getting at is after that, what happened to it? It was a cold case then. Yeah. Uh, but then you would ever, ever like again yeah, everybody that came in becoming a commander. When were you? When did you inv- be the investigations commander? Let me see. I was was that the second time I was in. Well, what I'm getting at is that I was promoted to the investigations commander and lieutenant in 1990, January 1st, 1999, because that's when Harris retired. So Beardsley promoted me to the investigations. And then, so I don't know what happened between 90 and 99 because I wasn't involved. I was a detective and a sergeant. So in 1999, I took over, and one of the first things Chief Beardsley said was, George, I want you to look into this because we had that big – stack of crap next to the desk it's okay and he actually budgeted money out of the from the counts for to send me to different places to check it out because i remember because i was kind of reluctant to go i don't want to go to south dakota (laughs) (laughs) but anyway so he so 1999 i started looking into it and it was haphazard from that point you know i'd do some things and do do not you know we weren't Solely focused right. on, on and that. that's when I did a cold, the cold case with all the major right. homicide detectives here around here. Uh, we sat around for three days going over stuff, reading reports. That was the first cold case thing, and that they said, "Hey, you got that? It's, it's the guy, the same guy." Just to clarify, the same guy that Hodak is talking about there is Michael. Over the years, he's remained the prime suspect in the eyes of the Creefcore Police Department. I had a psychiatrist or something. He looked at the case and he was looking at it from a different point of view. And he wrote up, it's a guy who would, who's familiar with the campus and who knows her routine and who may carry tools on his, that's the one thing I remember him saying, carry tools on his belt, like a maintenance guy. So that was his take on it. Then I went to Philadelphia to give the cold case to the VDOC Society, which is all the East Coast detectives out there. And they listened to it. Hey, you had the right guy. Uh, and then I, from there, I went to Reading because he had been assistant minister in Reading and I missed him there. He'd been, gotten the job in South Dakota. So I came back and I don't remember exactly what I did for a while, but then I ended up going to South Dakota and information had gotten out that a St. Louis City detective was coming here to investigate a homicide the papers up there picked it up and so the elders of the place this guy was working picked it up they brought him in or was going to bring him in for to talk to him about it and he said i don't have to answer your questions and he quit and then he went to texas uh and so i missed him in south dakota by like two they said oh you just missed him it was two weeks or something so did that and then can't remember what else but it was always right next to me doing stuff i want to clarify some of hodak's adventures that he just described since he was already in philadelphia presenting the case to the vdoc society he made a couple of other stops in the northeast as well including trying to check in on michael through the mid to late 90s michael and his family lived in redding pennsylvania but they were already gone by the time hodak got there Then the same thing happened again in South Dakota. Michael lived there for a time, but moved shortly before Hodak visited. 
There were some other newsworthy events that happened during Michael's time in South Dakota, but we'll talk more about that in a future episode. One of the last pages from the initial police reports that we reviewed concerns a meeting between Creve Corps detectives and the St. Louis County prosecuting attorneys on July 27, 1990. The detectives presented all their evidence, and while the prosecutors felt they had the right person in mind, they also thought the police didn't have sufficient evidence to bring a case in a court of law. The feeling was that if they issued a warrant and brought Michael to trial, he might be acquitted. And they didn't want to risk that. So everyone agreed to wait for additional evidence to come forward. Unfortunately, no further evidence has come forward. At least, nothing convincing enough to change the minds of the prosecutors over the last 33 years. So that's a high-level look of where the police investigation has been, at least from the perspective of Detectives Hodak and Spory, who worked the case on and off that whole time. In a future episode, you'll hear from another retired Creve Corps detective who has a different theory of the case. But just as important to this story is how Covenant Seminary has responded. What's the obligation of a Christian institution in how they respond to a crime of this magnitude? So now I want to circle back and examine the relationship between the Creve Corps Police Department and Covenant Seminary, and how the seminary managed the fallout from the murder. Through multiple news releases in 2023, since we started asking administrators about the case, Covenant has said that they continue to fully cooperate with the police. That may be true now, but as you'll hear, that may not have always been the case. We approached the uh, folks at the seminary. Do they have any information? Right, you right, know? right, right. And basically the people in the seminary said they did not want to believe that it could have been yeah. any one of the people and, from campus. And they actually did their own investigation, which we've never seen. They hired an attorney. Uh, there was a couple of them. And they were going to do their own investigation. They were actually going to be interviewing people. And had we known that, we would have liked to have had that information. Well, years later, we ended up finding about yeah. finding this out. And then George and I and Captain Dale. Bailey, Dale, we want to see the file. So we actually went to the campus and at the seminary and said, we want to we understand there's a file. We want, Oh, we don't know anything about it. Well, it just ended up that the secretary who was there at the yeah, time yeah, yeah. was was cooperative. Oh my! And yes. she wanted to she wanted to help if she could. He says, "Oh, there's there's some information here. Well, where is it? Well, it ended up being in the administrator's safe. Uh, yeah, safe. A uh, safe. I know president that. Safe. Yes. President, president safe. President safe. Thank you. There, there you go. It was in a president's safe. And I go, well, if it's in there, there should be more information. There wasn't. There was some, but there wasn't all these interviews. And there was the thing that they put together on Weinkoff, who they mm-hmm. thought Mr. Weinkoff yeah, that was, was. That was another uh, thing. They hid that one. They never told us about that. Well, they did tell us about that they had he had died, uh, but they didn't give us the report. Uh, the and one, the one to, lawyer came in, I think, and talked to the chief and right. said, yeah. So that didn't necessarily get back to the investigators. And then the, the ones that they did, supposedly it says they interviewed so many people wrote a report we've never seen that report and they can't, there was a there was and, a summary and they can't find it there's a lot to unpack there first detective hodak mentioned a man named weinkoff whose name appeared in some of the documents that they discovered in the covenant president's safe that's david weinkoff 
who was Elizabeth's pastor at Providence Reformed Presbyterian Church. We're going to spend time later in the series talking about Weinkoff's connection to the case. So we're just flagging it now as something important that we'll get back to later. What's more important to talk about now is the internal investigation that Covenant hired a law firm to undertake, starting in May of 1990. The timeline got a little muddled there when Spory and Hodak were talking about it, but they didn't find out about Covenant's investigation until 2019, almost three decades after the fact. Based on the law firm's five-page investigation summary document, which we obtained a copy of, their purpose was not to try and solve the murder separate from the police. Here's a very long sentence from that document. Quote, We established the primary purpose to be to obtain as many facts as we could about the case, both from our own investigation and from information shared with us by the police officers investigating the crime, in order to provide the seminary with recommendations designed to deal with resultant security concerns on campus, together with long-range recommendations designed to minimize whatever risk might exist that a similar tragedy might occur in the future. Unquote. So, basically, the seminary wanted to see if there was anything they could do to make the campus more secure, and also determine whatever legal jeopardy they might be under as a result of the murder. During their investigation, the law firm interviewed over 60 people, although we don't know exactly who, and compiled a full report, as they said, quote, detailing pertinent facts learned during the course of the investigation, together with more detailed recommendations and conclusions, unquote. The five-page executive summary is dated September 28, 1990, and in it, the law firm says that they can provide the full report upon request. But as far as we've been able to determine, that full report may be lost. Neither Covenant nor the lawyers of the now-defunct law firm claim they have a copy or know of one that currently exists. As we'll talk more about in a few minutes, Paul Koistra and Brian Chappell have declined requests to be interviewed for this series. Now, at this point, we need to take a bit of a detour and talk about Mark Bells, the primary lawyer in charge of Covenant's administrative investigation. His name might sound familiar to those in the world of American evangelicalism. The Bells family has a long history in the Presbyterian Church and with Covenant Seminary. In 1981, Mark's brother Joel founded God's World News, a children's publication, which I remember reading as a kid, and then World Magazine in 1986. Mark and Joel's sister-in-law and niece are both well-known Christian writers, and their brother Tim is also an attorney who worked with Mark on Covenant's internal investigation in 1990. In the 1970s, Mark took a short break from his legal practice to get a Master of Divinity degree from Covenant, and he was well-known in St. Louis for representing anti-abortion groups and other conservative causes. In 1991, he was elected the moderator of the PCA, which is a really big deal, and he was also a founding member of Westminster Christian Academy in St. Louis. Mark Bells has been at the very top of my list of people that I've wanted to talk to for this series, and I've been trying to track him down for over a year now. Kyle and I actually knocked on his front door twice, and it was only just a couple weeks ago that Mark agreed to speak to me on the phone. Unfortunately, I don't have audio I can share of that conversation, so I'm going to paraphrase it as best I can. Among other things, Mark told me about Covenant's internal investigation. He says they talked to a bunch of people, including the police, and made recommendations for ways the seminary could improve safety. Then he personally presented the findings to the Covenant board, and he said it would have been normal to just hand over the summary document, not the full report. 
Essentially, that's what the seminary was paying them for. It's kind of like, you guys wade through the source material and just give us your high-level recommendations. Mark says he remembers there being three banker's boxes worth of material that they gathered over the course of the investigation. But he doesn't know what happened to them. Years later, he went searching for the boxes in his law firm's archives, but the boxes had disappeared. I asked him if the full report and documents may have gone missing while he was undergoing a bipolar episode, something he's been in treatment for for a long time, and which contributed to a temporary suspension of his law license in 2008. To his credit, though, he's very forthcoming about his history, and as he remembers it, a relapse that he had in the 1990s happened several years after Elizabeth's murder and the subsequent investigation. So he doesn't think that had any effect on his work for Covenant. This is, let's go back to where, because we're, we're, we're actually getting some years ahead now. Yeah, this is many years ahead. Uh, they did their own investigation. They had an attorney. The attorney ended up being, who was affiliated with the seminary, a really very substantial uh, attorney. A very, he's got some good credentials. Well, he ended up being, he was a prosecutor, but they hired, they went to a firm, and he went to that firm. Yeah. Well, that, to me, is a conflict of interest. Yeah, he was, yeah. The lawyer that they're referring to is Al Johnson, who still practices in St. Louis today. He runs a nonprofit law firm assisting people who can't afford private legal counsel. Johnson attended Covenant Seminary for one year, starting in 1977, which also overlapped with the time that both Mark Bells and Brian Chappell were students at Covenant. At the time of the murder in March 1990, Johnson was the assistant St. Louis County prosecuting attorney, and he had some involvement with the police side of the investigation. But then in May of 1990, he left the prosecuting attorney's office and went to work for Mark Bell's law firm. As the executive summary states, quote, Al Johnson conducted some investigation of this crime while still on staff as an attorney with the prosecuting attorney's office of St. Louis County. His experience in criminal law from a prosecutor's standpoint uniquely qualified him to pursue this investigation on behalf of Covenant, and we believe that a thorough job has been done, unquote. We reached out to Al Johnson, and while he did provide some helpful background information, he declined to speak specifically about his involvement in Covenant's investigation. Although Mark Bells told me that he had been trying for years to recruit Johnson to his law firm, and that there was nothing nefarious about Johnson switching sides in the middle of the police investigation. It was just the right career move for him at the time. The seminary wanted, like, like George said, they wanted to believe that it was an outside person. And when you, again, reiterating what I said earlier, if it had been somebody that had broken into the, uh, the seminary, they would leave if somebody's coming in. If somebody would uh, confront someone, they would run away because they don't want to be identified. They may take one or two shots and take off. But they'll, I mean, you they'll know, punch run. once or twice. Uh, but to go to the extent that they did with her, this was a an act of anger or rage. Personal. It was, yeah, personal. It was very personal, personal. On the, what happened to her. So anyway, the seminary did not want to believe it would have been anybody on campus. And I guess from the second day, if not the first day on, as far as investigations were concerned, we thought it was somebody from the campus or at least affiliated with the campus in some in some respect. Like George said, we had five, six people that we were looking into, and that was just coming from the first day. And then, like I said, when we'd meet at night, we'd talk about what happened at the uh, during some of our investigations, and those leads, like George said, would lead to other leads. 
and we'd be tracking those down. And we had some leads on these people that really <laughs> needed need to be looked into. Look, yeah, it looked good at the time. Uh, but we weren't getting a whole lot of cooperation as far as from the administration. And then we found out later that the uh, administration was saying, you can talk to the police, but don't. If they answer their questions, but don't yeah, talk to them. If they approach you, yeah. answer the questions. But if they don't, don't offer don't anything. Don't volunteer anything. And that, that, if nothing else, if I were to tell you, you can talk to George if he asks you a question, but don't talk to him otherwise. That kind of sets you in your mind, I should stay away from the police. Well, and the other thing, too, was there were 15 sets of fingerprints that were found in the area of the bathroom and the, and the room classroom 15 sets of fingerprints not necessarily meaning it's the bad guy because it's a public bathroom and there's going to be fingerprints all over the place but they set up a fingerprint department and asked all the students and i think there was only like 200 at the time plus staff staff to get their finger elimination fingerprints taken all right, elims is what they're you know what we call them elims to make sure that okay that's not you yours it's not your prints not your prints your prints and we I think they made ten twelve they identify but not every student gave their fingerprints okay we don't have two hundred and fifty sets of fingerprints I guarantee you that so I don't know if that goes to cooperation but it certainly doesn't go to trying to help us here's Marilyn Baker. They fingerprinted everybody. And some of the young 22-year-olds were freaking out over it. They would come over to our apartment and be freaking out. Well, why are they doing that? Well, Chris's fingerprints were on file because he was a Vietnam vet. So that didn't... He was trying to calm them down. Well, they need to have everybody fingerprinted, you know, whoever. And some of our neighbors were the sweet, sweet Korean people, you know, who were just... Everybody was devastated, you know, because they were just devastated. And they were scared why they were being questioned by the police. We didn't ever get scared that the police came to our apartment or questioned us three and four times in the past 30 years. That didn't scare us because the more... The, the older we get, the less we remember. You know, so we're not very helpful to them anymore. In May of 1992, President Paul Koyster wrote a letter in which he describes what it was like on Covenant's campus in the aftermath of the murder. We'll talk much more about that letter and the circumstances surrounding it in a future episode. But for now, this one passage is relevant to point out here. He says, quote, during the first flurry of activity, we had as many as 50 police officers on the campus at once. Literally hundreds of students and their family members were interviewed by the police. Over 100 students were fingerprinted. I and my staff also voluntarily submitted ourselves to fingerprinting, simply to keep the students from feeling isolated or shamed by the process." Unquote. Here's Jerem Bars, talking about Covenant's cooperation with the police. Also, you're going to hear another voice talking to Jerem, that's actually Ruth's dad, Doug Servan. Doug has a larger role in this story, but you'll hear more about and from him in future episodes. But on the other hand, Covenant Seminary is doing their own internal investigation and sort of like working with the police, but not working with the police at the same time. Well, they should have been. I, I did not know until a couple of weeks ago that People were discouraged from cooperating with the police. I had no idea of that. I'm appalled by it. Do you know why that would be? To do with image, I'm sure. 
given the person who, who discouraged them. Though anybody who knows anything about the seminary will know who I'm talking about. We've reached out to Covenant, both the current and former administrators, requesting interviews so they can share their sides of the story. We got no response from Paul Koistra, the president in 1990. As you've already heard, the vice president in 1990 was Brian Chappell. He was also the dean of faculty and the primary administration official in charge of both Covenant's internal investigation and interfacing with the police for their investigation. It's also worth saying that today, Brian Chappell is the stated clerk of the Presbyterian Church in America, which, as one pastor described it to me, is the highest paid position in the denomination and is sort of a mix between a CEO and a bishop. Now, I know there's no bishops in the PCA, but you can think of it kind of like a role that mixes business responsibilities with pastoral work. In response to an interview request from Ruth and me, Brian Chappell gave us this written statement. Quote, My understanding is that Covenant Seminary has recently issued a statement from the Creve Corps Police, indicating that the school has always fully cooperated with legal authorities in this matter. Out of respect for Elizabeth McIntosh and her family, that remains the most appropriate response from me. Unquote. The statement he's referring to was released by Covenant in June 2023. We had already asked Covenant officials to speak to us about this podcast, but the statement came mostly in response to complaints from a person named Carl about Covenant's treatment of their father, Michael, who was the prime suspect. Carl believes Covenant mishandled both the murder and its subsequent treatment of their family. You'll hear directly from Carl in a future episode, and you already heard part of their song in episode one. But for now, Here's part of the statement that Covenant released in response to Carl. Quote, Covenant Seminary has always cooperated and will continue to cooperate with law enforcement. According to Chief John Hartman, the Creve Corps Police Department considers this case an open investigation, and we continue to explore leads as they develop. Covenant Theological Seminary is cooperating with Creve Corps Police Department in all aspects of this investigation. Unquote. Now, notice that Brian Chappell's characterization of that statement is inaccurate. The Creep Corps police chief said that Covenant is cooperating, not that Covenant has always fully cooperated. On the contrary, Detectives Hodak and Spory are pretty clear that they don't think Covenant helped or shared as much information with the police as they could have. Here's Ruth. They pull in Michael and Jill at 8 o'clock on Monday. It's not necessarily obvious that everybody would have known that. Then Tuesday, they go back to a lot of people and they start asking people about Michael and about John and about some other people they'd identified as persons of interest. So that's when Brian and Paul and other people in admin would have said, oh, shoot, you're asking us about our students. And then probably moving out from there, they would have been like, hmm. I just want you all to be real careful because we don't know who it was and we really hope they're also looking into other people. Here's Hodak and Spory talking about why they think Covenant wasn't as helpful as they could have been. Shame. Uh, They felt shameful about it. Uh, They didn't want to admit that it would have been one of their own. They think it's somebody who came in there from the street. And that's just not, that's not, no. Just didn't happen that way. It's personal, regardless of who did it. And we all can be in disagreement on who did it, but it's personal. It whatever it was, it was personal between that person and and the person had to know her schedule. 
had to know where she would be at that time of the day. Here's Diane Preston. I think it was wishful thinking on Covenant's part that they wanted it to be an outsider off the highway. I think it's pretty clear it was not. And I think the police abandoned that a long time ago. Um, it was an inside job, and it was somebody she knew, which means it was somebody at Covenant. A, they would have to know she worked every morning. She was house cleaning, and they'd have to know that she did house cleaning in the chapel basement every morning. Or it would have to be one whale of a coincidence. I'm sorry, I don't believe in that kind of coincidence. So it, it had to be somebody who knew her, knew her schedule and what she did and where, in my opinion. So that's an inside person. That's somebody she knew. One thing I think we need to cut in at some point in your narration is also acknowledging one of the other theories was that it was somebody who was at the psychiatric hospital who kind of like wandered onto seminary. That's something that, that's a theory that people have told me not knowing any of this. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that the police also looked into that, also interviewed those people mm -hmm. and basically never, nothing ever came of it. Did you guys get pushback from Covenant? I mean, certainly from the Covenant PCA side, if you talk to people who have heard the story from, from that side of things, and even there's some, some quotes from some of the post-dispatch articles from that time, the sense was, for whatever reason, the seminary felt like the investigators are focusing on the wrong guy. Did you, was there actual pushback from them ever on investigators or it was just more he of a and I wouldn't have been in, you're talking about politics now. And that would have been the chief of yeah. police, maybe uh, the seminary and the attorneys that were involved. I don't remember any, but we on, on outside pressure no, saying solve no, this, don't, you know, no. no. But at, at that time, you guys are more like foot soldiers right. doing the groundwork. Exactly. That's, that's kind of stuff is happening above you guys right right and i can understand this there was concern with a, a, a liability issue uh they were looking at more on the liability side as opposed to the criminal side yeah but when you're interviewing people they're going to give something up and it may not be interesting to you on a liability standpoint but it may be interesting to the investigators on a criminal standpoint i'll just ask do you know of any lawyer who misplaces their files yeah, supposedly they took the file, whatever information they did, and they put it in their barn, wherever that's well, it. And we it, got a hold of the guy from the barn, didn't we? And he they, could. They, yeah. Well, they said it wasn't at the barn any longer. If you're hiring a law firm and you're coming up with these files, whether it be criminal or whether it be for liability, especially if it's liability concern, don't you want to keep that file around? Now, liability-wise may pass after two to three years, but you still... Just in case something comes up, you would think you didn't want to keep that. Well, it wasn't until we came back in, 19, in 2019 that we ended up finding out about this file. And it was the, this attorney, this law firm that was working on it and trying to track them down. And the attorney didn't, wasn't necessarily cooperative with us at the time. There was another detective that was interviewing him, and he was a little more uh, forceful and kind of put up a barrier between that attorney and our investigator. But trying to, then we found out about this file 
And they said, well, the file's not here. Well, don't you have, keep one in the office? Well, he's no longer with this office. Doesn't make any difference. Normally, yeah, the protocol is the file would stay with the office. Couldn't find it, didn't have it. Then they said, well, it, it went out to the barn. We'd store things out at this barn out in West County at the time. Never got it. They couldn't find it. Yeah. Well, they but, got a hold of the guy who ran the barn. Well, and I think yeah. he looked and he said he couldn't find he it. He couldn't find it. But I said, why don't we get a search warrant? I wanted I wanted to get a search oh, yeah. warrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the for the seminary. Yeah. When to get a search warrant for the, based upon what one of our detectives right, came up right. with. We wanted a search warrant for the seminary, wanted a search warrant for the barn. And this is my perspective on it. Because it was you were going after a search warrant for lawyer information. For lawyers. Yep. They didn't, oh, they, they didn't want to cross they that didn't line. Want to, yep. They didn't want to do that. So we never did get a search warrant and, for, but, uh, yeah. for for the seminary. And if it had been for that young, or the, the lady who was a secretary, yeah. we wouldn't then, have known about a lot of this then stuff. But then again, Dalby helped too, I think. Yes, he did. Yeah, he was Yeah, He was. He, he kind of opened things up and let us look in certain places. They're talking about Mark Dalby, who was Covenant's president from 2013 to 2021. Multiple Creve Corps detectives we spoke with said that Dalby was the most helpful Covenant administrator they ever worked with. Regarding the barn, that was an off-site facility that Mark Bell's law firm used to store files that they no longer needed. And the name isn't a euphemism. It's literally a barn that a friend of Mark's owned. According to Mark, the files from Covenant's investigation couldn't have been stored there because they went missing prior to anything being moved to the barn. Here it's worth saying that, according to Mark Bells, the claim that Covenant didn't fully cooperate is, in his words, ridiculous, and that no one cooperated more than Paul Koistra and Brian Chappell. He says they tried to work with the police as much as possible, because Covenant wanted the murder solved just as much as the police did. As we mentioned earlier, Mark claims that the police were aware of Covenant's internal investigation, because they interviewed some of the police. For Mark, the police saying otherwise is simply an attempt to shift the blame from their botched investigation, as he described it. He also claims that over the years, the police have directly accused him of withholding or hiding information, which he adamantly denies. And for what it's worth, I believe him. Mark Bell strikes me as very sincere in wishing that he could find the missing files and that he cooperated as best he could with the police. Now, I also believe George Hodak and Dennis Sporey that they didn't personally find out about Covenant's investigation until 2019. So obviously there's a big disconnect somewhere here. It's possible that the higher-level police officials in 1990 knew what Covenant was doing, but if they did, that information didn't make it into the record. So here we have two groups of people, both extremely close to the murder, saying essentially opposite things. The problem for Ruth and I, as we've been trying to piece together this series, is that overall, the police have been much more forthcoming and willing to share their side of the story. All of the police documents we've reviewed were provided directly by them. But the few covenant documents we have, we had to obtain from sources outside the seminary. And again, up to this point, no high-level administrators from covenant, past or present, have been willing to go on the record with us. We want to tell this story as accurately as possible and fairly represent everyone involved. But Mark Bells is the first person from Covenant's side who's directly told us anything of substance contrary to the police narrative, outside of boilerplate denials. Ruth and I aren't mind readers. 
And we can only present information in this series that other people are willing to share with us. Before we started airing episodes, people from Covenant seemed to be worried that this would be just another exploitative, clickbait, true crime series. And I can't even say that I blame them, since they hadn't heard anything yet. But now four episodes in, I hope that the work we've presented speaks for itself. That that is not the case. So our door is always open. And we would love to hear the other side of the story from anyone connected to Covenant who is willing to go on the record about it. This is a pretty unusual case for Creevecore, Missouri. Did you guys feel any pressure, either from the community or from the higher-ups in the police department? Is there a sense of, like, you guys need to solve this yesterday? I, no. No, I think there was, there was cooperation. The chief had an association with... With the, the seminary. seminary, yeah, and so he wanted to solve it, but I, he got say, he got into a tiff with the major K squad commander yeah. and basically told him to take off because he didn't like what was going on because uh, of some of the stuff you guys have talked about. Yeah, yeah, th- yeah. they they you had don't, a, they had an issue. Yeah, because even even to this day, suspect. even to this day, when I I used to see. Uh, the commander up on the campus, and he's, hey, George, how you doing? Okay, you know, still, still working on that, whatever. You know, he was pretty contrite about the whole thing. So, yeah, we had the right guy. But no, I didn't, I didn't feel any pressure from the outside people. I felt internal pressure because I wanted right. to solve it too. And there was... I mean, I didn't want, I didn't want to solve it. I wanted to solve it. As the case went on, uh, not being able to have the cooperation we would have suspected we would have gotten from the seminary was frustrating. And that played out years and years and years after that. As you heard in the last episode, the detectives from Creve Corps had some issues with the way that the major K-Squad commander was handling the investigation that first week. Specifically that Michael was pulled in for questioning on the night of the murder, which they felt was too soon. They also mentioned the Creve Corps police chief having an association with the seminary. The chief in 1990 was a man named Richard Schnarr. Various sources have told us that he attended and was possibly even a deacon at the Kirk of the Hills, a well-known Presbyterian church in St. Louis, which is only a couple miles from Covenant. Coincidentally, Elizabeth's funeral service was held at the Kirk, which is what St. Louis Presbyterians call the church. You heard Jerem mention that earlier. Here's Ruth and I talking about the chief and his possible connection to Covenant. So, can you tell me why you're interested in Chief Schnarr? Um, through this entire investigation over the last couple of years as we've been getting deeper into this thing, there's always been the sense that the police did not understand PCA world. They did not understand the dynamics of what was going on at the seminary. And Mark Bell's talked about that. You know, they treated it like a common street crime from his perspective, and they just didn't get the dynamics. And on the one hand, that's understandable because the police aren't Presbyterian. It's this niche little subculture that we grew up in, so you and I understand it, but the police don't get that. So then it was just really confusing to hear that the Creve Corps chief of police at the time of the murder was attending one of the most well-known Presbyterian churches in St. Louis. And so it seems like, well, hey, if the guy at the top of the police department did understand PCA world and covenant to some degree, 
it seems like he would have been a perfect person to kind of translate between the detectives who aren't Presbyterians and the seminary. And that he, you know, there could have been some under, mutual understanding that could have gone on there. Maybe he was talking to them in the background or whatever, but that there's no indications of that in the police report. And based on what Hodak and Spory have talked about, it didn't seem to help because the cops didn't get it. And there's no indications in the report that they got it. So it just seems like something's missing here. If if this guy was really a part of this community, why did that not flow into the police investigation more? Right. I mean, I, I think it's a good question. I definitely want to know the answer. I guess I just wonder... I think there are reasonable explanations of either he didn't get involved in the day-to-day investigations or maybe he just wasn't <laughs> he went to church but he wasn't like super hardcore for that particular church or what they believed. Um maybe he was just bad at explaining Bible school stuff to his um detectives. But I I do think it's interesting. Um it also is would be interesting too if if they did have a closer connection, why did Covenant distrust the police so much too? You would have thought they would have been able to talk more, but you like conspiracy theories more than I do. So <laughs> that's, that is not true. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's anything nefarious going on necessarily, but I do think it's a point worth flagging. There, there could be a very simple, innocent explanation, but I do think, I feel very strongly that it is a point it's an important point to try to figure out and track down. You know, I don't, I don't think it's like if we can figure this out, the whole case is solved. But I think it could go a long way to possibly explaining the dynamics between Covenant and the police. So short of a confession, is there any way for this case to be definitively solved today? Unless there's some new DNA process. I think... The more people that listen to his podcast, as long as you do it right, (laughs) I know you will, might open some, might be a way to open some memories or repressed things or whatever they're not telling us from the Presbyterian community, maybe. Because it seems to me that you got a lot of people interested in this from, not necessarily from the general public, but from the Presbyterian community and there might be somebody who's been sitting on something and says you know i, I remember this yeah, person i remember but, this yeah. happening you know i remember seeing this guy running across the parking lot or whatever so that might do it that he pisses his wife off and she just finally decides hey this has been a we've been living a terrible lifestyle for 30 years because of the crap you did so he fi- she finally comes out or he does a deathbed confession Physical evidence, I doubt if we're ever, ever going to get any physical. I don't think we have any more DNA. No, we don't. But we still got those three finger, those two or three fingerprints up at the top. Those three yeah, up at the top yeah, have not yeah. been identified. No more DNA, meaning whatever samples you collected in 1990, there's not enough usable material to run a match against. Because yeah. we have spent it all on, on different yep. DNA tests. Yeah, and, they, and they would send us... They would send us notices saying, you know, we, if we use this, that's the end. And we, we were notified of that. I'm Catholic, so I pray every day that we solve this case. But having said that, I also tell my relatives, I said, when I die, 
There's two questions I'm going to ask St. Peter. Who killed Kennedy? Who killed Elizabeth? <laughs> and we may know who killed Kennedy before we know about it. <laughs> so that's all he has to tell me. So that's more or less where the case is at today. Not much physical evidence, various detectives that have dabbled in various follow-ups over the last 33 years, a missing Covenant internal investigation report, and a prime suspect that was never charged with anything, plus some other possibly shady characters who we'll talk about in future episodes. But we want to take a break from all that to put the focus back on Elizabeth. Who was she? What was she doing at Covenant? How did people experience her? And what were her plans for the future? Next time. True Believer is written, recorded, edited, mixed, and executive produced by TJ Ingracia. Co-written and co-produced by Ruth Servan-Smith. Research and development by Kyle Hackman and Doug Servan. Visit truebeliever.podcast.com to see additional materials related to each episode or to get in touch with us. If you're someone who knew Elizabeth, or have any information related to her or her murder, we'd love to hear from you. Next time on True Believer. Yeah, I, I have no doubt that whoever killed her you know, had a conflict with her as a man. Because here's this woman who has strong convictions, and if she disagrees, she will say so. I would add, and it's a word that might be taken in a, a wrong way, I mean, opinionate, strong-minded, I would say. She was a woman of strong opinions. Convictions. She, convictions, yeah. The Scottish part, it's important that we don't discount that. There's a certain temperament, and so there's this resolve and this sometimes fierceness. Apparently, Liz was considering transferring to Knox Seminary because Knox was uh, a little more conservative than Kevin. Okay, Knox was a lot more conservative. Covenant was conservative. Knox was far right. She really didn't come across as bitter or angry or anything about leaving Covenant to go to Knox. She loved us and our kids and us, and we loved her. 